right, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We are going through the Gospel of John week by week, verse by verse, discovering treasures about Jesus. My purpose in life, I believe, ultimately is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. If we are not Christ-centered, what are we doing? There's a lot of preaching today that's nothing more than pep talks, and it generates a self-centeredness that's not good. It really is. We want to be Christ-centered, and so I'll just let that word be applied to this place. All right, moving right along. Verse 5 of John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Let's pray. Lord, we ask for you to speak to us from your words. Help us, Lord, to line up with your purposes. Give us hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive today. And enable me, Lord, to communicate what you would have me do. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? He's asking that question based on what Jesus said in the previous chapter. Keep in mind, John didn't record with chapters and verses, but chapters and verses were put there centuries later to help us navigate through the scriptures easier. And so I think it's a blessing, but just keep in mind they weren't there. So in the same conversation, Jesus was talking to them, verse 33 of John 13. He said, little children, I shall be with you. A little while longer you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And Peter responds by saying, Lord, you're going where we can't go. Where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. The last part of verse 36 in John 13. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And then he predicts Peter's denial. But then he goes ahead and brings words of comfort, saying, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to make the way for you. Unsatisfied with this answer, and Peter obviously has been shut down, Thomas speaks up. Where you're going and how can we get there? So it's two questions. Where's Jesus going and how can we join you? You say we're eventually going to join you. How is this possible? So Jesus answers this question in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he reverses his question. The question was, where are you going? How can we get there? He answers the second one first. The way to get there is me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And where I am going is the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So the Father's where I'm going. I'm going Come and go with me to my father's house. Remember that song? He's going to his father's house. He's going to the father, and no one can come to the father except through him because he is the way to the father. He is exclusive. Can we say Jesus is exclusive? Christianity has often been accused of being exclusive. There should be many ways to God, people say. But Jesus said he's the only way. I'm the way. The world's full of people that want to give credit to Jesus for being a good guy. Meanwhile, they reject what he said. If you like me, but you don't like anything I say, you really don't like me. 
It's just lip service. Man, basically in his very nature, is fallen, which means we want to build God in our image. And God should be smart like us and have many ways of doing things. We want our options here in America, don't we? God, where's the menu at? I am the menu. I am the way. He is exclusive. Vladimir Putin recently tried to spank our president for implying that America is exceptional. And I understand politically correctness, why we don't need to be prideful as a nation, obviously. But the truth is, America is exceptional. You know? You keep droning on about our exceptionalism, we'll just drone you. (laughs) What pales that comparison is Christ is the only way to the Father. He is the Father manifest in the flesh. Getting ahead of myself. All right. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. There's many times his teachings just went over their head. Here, three of them have asked. Peter, Thomas, now Philip ventures out to try to understand what Jesus is talking about. Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll leave you alone kind of deal. It sufficeth us, the King James says. It's sufficient. Show us the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The Father's in me. And I don't say anything that he's not telling me to say. And I don't do anything that he doesn't tell me to do. So look at these miracles I performed. I am demonstrating to you what the Father's doing. I'm saying to you what the Father is saying. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the visual representation of the Father. Biblically, we believe that God is omnipresent, means he's everywhere present. He's omniscient, means he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, it means he's all-powerful. If he exercised his full power, we'd be destroyed. So he relates to us at a level that doesn't destroy us. Isn't that a blessing? He's omniscient, he's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew who was going to be in here this morning. He's like a great chess player. He knows the next move of his opponent, he just knows. And so he is omniscient. He's also omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, which means if he becomes visible suddenly, you're blind. His presence became visible one time in the Old Testament. Nobody could see. It said, the house was filled with smoke. Now, I know God's a consuming fire, and his presence can be bright and blinding, But if his presence wasn't bright and blinding, you just can't see, which was the case there in that Old Testament story. You see, he fills this room, whether you feel it or not. He fills the town of Granbury. He fills the earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen? He fills the universe. So if he suddenly became visible, we couldn't see anything else. 
What am I saying? I'm saying the presence of God fills this room. God is between me and Janice. God is between you and Greg. God is between us, right? He's in this room. He fills the space. There is no vacuum where God isn't, right? David said, if I go to hell, you're there. So if he suddenly becomes visible, then God's between me and you. I can't see anything. So God, in his mercy, enabling us to enjoy creation, has made himself invisible. So to make himself visible, his word became flesh. He became one of us and came to the earth. He was in the Father and the Father was in him. Do you see that? Now there's some people out there, they call themselves Jesus only, and they say the Son is the Father. And the Father is the Son and there is no distinction between the two. It's called the oneness doctrine. But they overlook the witness of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. See that? Here's a good little illustration. I have outside this church over there a little 2006 white Chevrolet Colorado pickup truck with a five-cylinder engine that will pull a trailer as good as some big trucks. I like my little truck. But that's not the whole story. This is a key to that little truck. You can try to take my truck, but without the key, you're not going to enjoy the fullness of that truck. I heard of a missionary that left his motorcycle on some island somewhere, came home on furlough. The natives began using his motorbike as a flashlight. They didn't have the benefits of the key, but they figured out how to make the light work. And they carried the motorcycle around for a flashlight. If you don't have a flashlight, it's a great benefit. So the truck could make a great fishing weight if you're catching whales or whatever. But with a key, you get the full benefit of it, right? But even that's not the full picture. I have here the title to that truck. The truck, the key to the truck, the title to the truck. In a sense, this is my truck. Because without it, you can't enjoy it, right? In a sense, this is my truck. In fact, it has a serial number on it. This is proof of ownership. You could steal my truck and take it, but you would not be able to enjoy the benefits of the truck with full enjoyment without fear unless you have this in your name. Three in one. Jesus is in the Father. The Father's in Jesus. They're one, and yet they are distinct. Jesus is the arm of God and the Holy Spirit is his finger. There's scriptures that say those kind of things. Jesus said, I cast out devils by the finger of God, the Holy Spirit. And he's called the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. And he launches off into this fabulous prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. If I hide behind that curtain and stick a finger out and you didn't see me get behind there, you wouldn't know whose finger that was. You'd say, who is that? And somebody that saw me get back there could say, that's Alan Latta. And it wouldn't be me. It's my finger. Yet it would be me. Because without my finger, I'm not complete, right? Or stick my arm out. Who is that? If you didn't see me get behind there, you wouldn't know unless you recognize my hands that remind me of my dad every time I look at him. Unless you saw me get back there, you wouldn't know whose arm that was. You could say that's an arm. Or you could say that's Alan Latta's arm. You see that? 
there's a oneness and yet there's a completeness. Without my arm, you don't have the full person that I am. All right, I think I'm preaching to the choir. You guys get the point. Believe me, verse 11, that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, can we say believes in me? The works that I do, he will do also. Can we say also? And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. May the Lord enable us to embrace, believe, and contend for the full fulfillment of those promises without watering down one word. Amen? If you love me, verse 15, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So now we have a verse where one could imply that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And yet we know the Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the of Christ. He's the Spirit of God, and yet there's a distinction between the two. Do you see that? Here's how I understand it. Jesus is the way to the Father. Without Him, you have no relationship with the Father. And He is the way to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus as the way to the Father. So without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't have God in His fullness. And Without Jesus, you don't have a way of salvation, of even having a relationship with God. Like the cross. He hung on the cross and died as the bridge between heaven and earth, paying the price for the sin that separated God and man. Christ, the man who is also God, paid the price on the bridge. He is the bridge, as it were. He's the bridge. He's no longer on the cross. He completed the work. When he said it is finished, it was done. Full payment made. Bam. Never has to do that again. We reap the benefits of that by believing that. And if we believe that, we're assured that our prayers are heard. We pray in his name. And we are candidates for receiving his spirit. By believing Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. A topic today is Jesus is the way. Can we say that? Jesus is the way, period. Not some other way. He is the way. He's our only way for knowing God. Jesus is our only way for knowing God. He is God made known. He's the express image of the person of God, another verse says. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's like he's the Father's arm. He's the Father's love extended. That's Jesus. He's our only way. 
Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want God in a human body? Jesus. Fullness. 1 Timothy 3, 16, Without controversy. All right, this is nothing to fight about. This is the solid truth. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is Jesus. He's the only way for knowing God. And he's the only way for knowing the truth because he is the truth personified. John 1.14, this book begins with this statement. The word, which is Jesus, became flesh, which is Jesus, and dwelt among us, which was Jesus. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, that's Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Can we say full of truth? He's a truth in a person. Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You want to be a disciple? Abide in his word. Live in his word. Embrace his word. And the result of that is you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you want to be free? Embrace the truth. You want to embrace the truth? Abide in his word. Abide in his word. It means all of his words. Before he began the Sermon on the Mount to preach those awesome commands to love our neighbors, he starts out with the Beatitudes, pronouncing blessings, encouraging us before the hard truth comes. That's why it's important to believe all the Word, all the New Testament, because there's things in there that will encourage you to help the medicine go down. Beware of a promise box gospel that doesn't embrace the whole picture, the whole word. You want to be a disciple? You want to have truth that sets you free? Sometimes that truth makes you mad, but it will set you free. The truth that sets you free is the truth that you abide in, all of his word. If you abide in my word, you're my disciple. He is our only way for knowing eternal life. He is our life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Can we say shall live? He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 14, 19. A little while longer the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live. Can we say will live? Also. He is the seed. Here's an illustration to consider. Let's say you wanted to be a peach tree farmer. You wanted to have an orchard of peaches that could support you to the point it would be your career. And all you could afford is one quality seed. You could plant that seed in the ground, take care of that till it became a tree. And when it started to bear fruit, you could take those seeds and theoretically began to plant them. And before long, you would have an orchard. If a seed could talk, it would say, plant my children and we'll fill the world with my fruit. Christ was that seed who was planted in the earth, ceased to exist for a short season, and came back to life bearing fruit. Believers who all have his seed, the incorruptible word of God living in us so that we too have the assurance of our eternal life. Because of his life, we live. He's the first fruits. We're the last fruits. 
He's our only way for continuing His works. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. What works did He do? He did some amazing things. And we are promised that we too will do those works. I believe this is a promise for the church. And some people will water this down. Well, this is for us corporately. Somewhere, somewhere in the world. Somewhere, somewhere in the world, somebody's being healed right now. So these works of Jesus are being done right now. And that's true. But that's not the full promise. The full promise is the individual. He, not we, not they, not you, he or she, the individual who believes in me, the works, works plural, that I do, that person will do also. That's our promise. Look at what he gave in the Great Commission as recorded in Mark chapter 16. These signs will follow. Can we say follow? Those who believe. Notice what he said in John 14. He who believes in me. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. Can we say will recover? This is a promise to us. That if we believe in him, if we believe in him, it means not just believing that he existed, or giving him mental assent, but we believe in him to the point of abiding in his word, which means a life that's reflected in doing his will, which is obeying the Great Commission, these signs will follow. I believe this promise is made on the basis of those who are obedient to his call of reaching out to people that don't know the Lord. Signs will follow those who believe in me. And those who believe in Jesus believe that he is the way and that the world needs to find that out. The Great Commission was not the great suggestion. It's something for us all to obey. There's somebody in your life that doesn't know about Jesus that you need to tell. Not cramming it down their throat, but sharing it with them. When they let you talk, talk. And when they have a problem, pray for them and let the signs follow. Too often, Christians follow signs. If somebody begins to have some miracles in their ministry before long, they have to rent a coliseum. Not for the unbelievers to come, I'm talking about America, but to fill the coliseum with sick Christians. Nothing's wrong with that picture. Nobody's vacating seats when an unbeliever can go be healed. I think the greater works comes into place when more of us are involved and doing the works. Next point. He is our only way for doing His greater works. Look at what happened in the early church. Greater works than these He will do, Jesus said. Those who gladly received the word that Peter preached in Acts 2 were baptized that day. The church grew an additional 3,000 people. There were already several hundred people. Now there are 3,000 and some hundred. Two chapters later, they grew to 5,000, and the church kept growing. So this word is being fulfilled in greater works of more people coming to know Jesus. So in Granbury today are probably at least 8,000 believers. 8,000 people converted to Christ. 
through all meeting and different expressions of his body. So greater works are happening if you look at it in that context. Look at the word that he used for greater, the Greek word zone, which means greater or larger or elder or stronger, greatest or more. It's an irregular comparative of a word megas, from which we get the word mega, which means big, exceedingly high, large, loud, mighty, and strong. So we're going to do greater works. Now, what I'm about to say isn't going to water down this passage, but if you don't see this, what I'm going to share, then you may run into watering down the passage. When someone receives eternal life, that is a great thing. Right? That's eternity. When Jesus fed the 5,000, wasn't that awesome? What happened the next day? They were hungry again. Lazarus being raised from the dead was awesome, wasn't it? What a mighty witness to Jesus. And yet, what eventually happened to Lazarus? He died. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Hallelujah, Jesus, the demons are subject to us. Jesus said, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your name is recorded in the book. The name in the book is eternal. It's great for people to be delivered of demons, but if they don't get full of God, what can happen to them? The demons can come back. They can become eight times worse. Jesus told it. He says, when a demon leaves a person, he'll go find seven friends and come back and see if they can move back in. They find it empty, they'll move right back in. And the person will be eight times worse. Seven plus one is eight. And so we rejoice in eternal things. They are really are the greater things. But the context is not just that. Jesus said, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do. This is our promise. Whether you have even begun to scratch the surface on seeing it fulfilled, it is our promise. If we're a believer, we've got to value this word of Jesus. He is our only way for praying more effectively. He want to pray more effectively. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, asking in his name isn't just praying a prayer for something you want and then saying, in the name of Jesus, as though it's an incantation that is guaranteed a miracle. In his name means a prayer reflects his will. It's a prayer in alignment with his character. You're not praying for a new spouse. In Jesus' name, Lord, replace this woman. No, that's our flesh. You know, I love the theatrics and all that stuff in the name of Jesus. But in reality, in his name is in alignment with his will and his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his name. His name is awesome. We pray to the Father in his name. Jesus also said in the next chapter, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, there it is again, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If his words abide in us, then we're going to live in his name. Whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, Paul wrote. In John 16, the next chapter, verse 23, Jesus said, In that day you will ask me nothing. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is other promises for us to contend for. I think our problem is we're not asking and praying big enough. Oh, Lord, bless us for and no more. Bless us with gravity. The fear of disappointment, I guess. You need to pray big prayers. Big prayers. Around the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great ruled the Grecian Empire. As emperor or king, occasionally he would host a day of granting people's petitions or at least listening to their problems and their petitions and doing what he deemed was right. And one day a poor man came to him and it was indicated to the poor man he could now approach Alexander and make his request. And he approached Alexander the Great and said, Sir, I would like a farm for myself and I would like a dowry for my wife and I would like a good education for my son." And Alexander said, granted. And the wheels were set in motion to have those petitions fulfilled. The man then left the room. Alexander's fellow governors, his underlings, turned to him and said, why could you bless such a greedy person like that? Why did you grant his petition? How prideful and arrogant of him. He said, I granted his petition because he asked big. I am sick and tired of people coming in here and asking me, can I have a gold coin? He said, that man made me feel like a king. Does God feel like a king when you approach him? Or does he feel like we view him as some kind of miser? If our petitions aren't granted instantly, we're just not going to make them. Are we that impatient? Lord, help us to pray big prayers. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He was asked, how should we pray? And he began to give the model prayer. This isn't something just to chant or mindlessly recite. But it's a pattern for prayer that we begin with praise. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a huge prayer. Think about that and begin to pray into that. It's huge. Give us this day our daily bread. That's personal needs. That is immediate needs. Daily bread. Jesus said don't worry about tomorrow. If he said don't worry about tomorrow, I don't think we're supposed to pray much about tomorrow. Pray about today. Lord, what are we going to do today? Cupboards are empty. What are we going to do? Forgive our sins. It's repentance. As we forgive those who sinned against us, that's praying for God to deal with those that have sinned against us and for God to enable us to forgive. 
Lead us not into temptation. That's praying in advance of being tempted. And deliver us from evil. Praying for deliverance over the enemy. Appealing to God for spiritual victory. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's big prayers. Can we stand? Some of you have dreams in your heart that just may be from God. And you stop praying about it. But let's not stop praying. Lord, if this dream isn't from you, adjust it. Make it be from you. Change my dreams. Maybe you stop dreaming because you don't want to be patient. What dream is there that if you would pray about it, it would be a big prayer. It's beyond your understanding. I just feel a pull in my heart for this. I want us just to pray big prayers. Prayers for people maybe you've given up on. Prayers for relationships that you've just kind of settled for the status quo where they're at. Lord, I ask you, let's just pray right now. Lord, we just come to you. Pray out loud. Lord, we just come to you and we pray big prayers. We pray, Lord, you would resurrect dreams that have died. We pray, Lord, that you would make your calling and election sure in the hearts and lives of every member of this congregation and every guest with us today. We pray, Lord, that the calling to reach the world with the gospel would burn hot within us. We pray, Lord, that you would reconcile irreconcilable differences. We pray, Lord, that you would meet unmet needs beyond the level of our expectation. Lord, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above of all that we can ask or think. We pray, Lord, that signs and wonders would follow your church. Lord, that you would give us boldness as individuals to do the works of Jesus everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray for those that have been disappointed in the past. God, we give you our disappointments. We thank you, Lord, that our prayers are answered on the day we ask. The answer's not coming to us. We're going to the answer. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to pray big prayers. Lord, we want you to feel like an awesome king when we come to you. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would heal everyone in this room that is hurting. In Jesus' name. Make this word palatable for those that aren't in a place to receive it fully. Lord, help them to receive what will take them another step in the direction of your will being fulfilled in their life. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done in our city, our county, our state, and our nation, and our this planet, Lord. In Jesus' name. If you've not received the Holy Spirit, I just encourage you to just open your heart up to Him right now. Just, just raise your hands. Maybe you have received, maybe be filled afresh. Lord, as we worship, ask the Lord to fill every part with your spirit.
lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May he use you like never before to be his light to the nation and the nations right here in our city. Thank you.